Welcome, everybody. I'm with the Neurological Deep Dive podcast and with Ferret Fawns. And my name is Dawn, and we're going to do a talk on this topic. We're going to talk about how to be happy and not depressed according to the Bible. I want to start with a verse from the Bible. It's in Psalm 128. In verse 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. I want to start with this question. What is happiness? According to Noah Webster, in his dictionary from 1828, he defined happiness in this way. It's the agreeable sensations which spring from the enjoyment of good. Or it's that state of being in which one's desires are gratified by the enjoyment of pleasure without pain. So true happiness is a state of mind. True happiness consists in the gratification of virtuous desire. In other words, it consists in the satisfying of morally pure wishes, morally pure longings and goals and desires. To be happy in some degree, there must be freedom from pain in body or mind. But to be happy in a high degree, there must be the enjoyment of lively sensations of pleasure, either in body or mind. A state of happiness is a state of freedom from mental and physical pain. It is a state of blessedness, inner peace, joy, and well-being. Happiness is the opposite of sadness. It's the opposite of depression. It's the opposite of bodily or mental misery. Sin is the primary and underlying cause of all uneasiness, depression, and pain. Sin is the transgression of God's law. Had sin not entered this world, guilt, death, sickness, and suffering would not have entered either. Because sin has entered, or it has occurred, and it now exists in this world, unmitigated and uninterrupted happiness is impossible to enjoy in this life. Even if we would sin no more, as God, as Jesus commands two people in the Bible, he tells them to sin no more. Even if we would do that, which is something attainable in this help, in this life with the help of Christ, we still will not have perfect and constant happiness. There are many, too many uh, variables and circumstances, too many sinners in this world for anyone to enjoy unmixed, unmitigated, and uninterrupted personal happiness. In Job chapter 5, it says this, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you find yourself generally uneasy, depressed, or unhappy, then search your heart for some sin or some violation of duty. 
if a sin does exist in your life, it ought to be acknowledged and forsaken as soon and as thoroughly as possible. Jesus never once committed a sin, but he experienced many disagreeable sensations. He was a man of sorrows. He experienced much undeserved mental and physical pain. Therefore, even if we live at all times as Jesus lived, it is useless to hope for unalloyed, unmitigated, and unvarying happiness in this life. But in spite of all the persecutions and privations and sufferings that Jesus experienced on earth, he is still the most blessed and joyous man who ever lived on this earth. And in Matthew chapter 5, we read this. And it's verse 11. Matthew 5, 11 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now Jesus is speaking. So if we are reviled or persecuted, or evil is done against us and is for Christ's sake, then we will be blessed. And that word blessed means happy. And then right after verse 12, it says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So if we're living for God and we have to endure privation or persecution or hardship, uh, we can rest assured that there is something really good around the corner. There is a reward waiting in heaven for us. Now, in order to experience this happiness, we need faith and we need to um, believe in the hope that God uh, makes mention in his word. So that's the definition. What is happiness? Now, um, let's talk about temporal and lasting happiness. Temporal happiness is the gratification of virtuous, and by virtuous I mean morally pure, temporal and sensual desires. For instance, if you're very hungry and you've been, you really want to have something to eat because you're really hungry, well, if you satisfy that hunger, you're going to have some temporal happiness right then and there. A boy, let's say, for instance, a boy has been striving all year to excel in a certain sport and has been making this his great desire and aim. He will enjoy temporal happiness if he wins the final championship contest, let's say. Even if he doesn't win, he may still find much inner contentment in knowing that he's tried his best and mistreated no one. This would be like temporal happiness. Or a man who desires to kill a deer during hunting season will enjoy happiness if he succeeds. Even if he doesn't succeed, he may still receive much inner satisfaction in knowing he tried his best and has not violated any law in the, in the process. These are some examples of the gratification of virtuous desire. Temporal happiness 
will be diminished in the degree that one violates his conscience in fulfilling his desires. Feelings of guilt always follow the violation of duty to God and man, as one perceives it in his mind. The more that one's conscience is enlightened, sensitive and active, the more will one feel mental pain when he does wrong. But this pain, in a sense, is a good thing because it, alert, it alerts him that something is wrong and something needs to be fixed. It is possible to lessen guilt feelings or temporal unhappiness by avoiding religious truth, by misinforming the conscience, by believing in lies, or by blame shifting. For example, one may blame his messed up life on the fact that he was mistreated in his past. Yeah, that might give him a little bit of relief temporarily. This may mitigate his feelings of guilt, but it will not fix the problem at its root. The sharp edge of guilt or of guilt feelings may also become less pronounced by repeated violations of duty. One sinful act tends to make way for another. Thus, sir, uh, thus uh, that will serve to sear and desensitize the conscience. So the more a person sins, the more it becomes easier to sin. That's why you want to deal with sin quickly and not prolong it. Some look for a church family that will overlook their sins and accept them as they are in their sins. Some avoid the kind of teaching that makes known the law of God and searches the conscience. They think this will promote their happiness, but it won't. Many churches today are misinforming or under-informing the conscience. Many are teaching a gospel, quote-unquote, that, that covers one in sin even while it is being committed. Many pulpits teach that it is possible to be carnal and a true Christian at the same time. As the Roman Catholics offered indulgences to sin in Martin Luther's day, so do Protestant fundamentalist churches in our day offer the same. They teach that one can be saved even while indulging in a quote-unquote little transgression. They call them saved sinners. These ministries help people to feel comfortable, secure, and happy in their carnality. But their comfort and happiness will be very deficient and short-lived. It will be only a temporary happiness. Other forms of escape by which people try to get rid of guilt feelings are pills, drugs, prescription or non-prescription drugs, alcohol, new relationships, entertainment, sports, um, video games, or other diversions. So what people do to escape some of their inner problems is by diverting their attention to something else. Well, that will only temporarily 
fix the problem of, of depression or of unhappiness. Sinful people who use these measures may appear to be happy, but their outward happiness is not full and it's not deep and it's not lasting. None of these things can cure a guilty conscience and bring true peace and contentment in the soul. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And it says this even to the best professing Christian in this world. Fuller, deeper, and lasting happiness and peace and peace of mind is found in being in the favor of God. It is found in doing the will of God. The Bible says, in fact, Christ said this in John chapter 13, verse 17. He says, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. So, a boy who has been striving all year to please God, promote the welfare of other people, and influence people for Christ while engaging in his particular sport and making these higher things his supreme goal, will enjoy much more inner and lasting satisfaction than the championship winner who made winning his supreme goal. Or a man who fulfills his desire to kill a deer, but breaks the law in order to kill it, will not have as much peace and joy as the man who kills a deer lawfully and makes pleasing God his supreme aim in this whole process. The lawbreaker may have his sensual and temporal appetite fulfilled, but with that, he will also have a measure of guilt and mental pain and uneasiness. So here are some uh, concluding remarks. Number one, happiness is comparative. For instance, if you've got a splinter in your hand, that will bring a degree of unhappiness. But if your hand gets broken, that will cause more unhappiness. So it's comparative. Um, here's another example. A man who broke his arm and does not have peace with God and does not have the assurance, or let's say, rather, instead of breaking the arm, let's say cancer. A man has cancer, or a man or woman has cancer. And um, they don't have peace with God, and they don't believe their soul is saved. They're going to have a lot of unhappiness. But if another person has the same cancer, but they have peace with God, they're going to have more happiness. So happiness is comparative. Secondly, constant happiness unmixed with pain is not really attainable in this life. And if it is, it won't last long. There are too many circumstances of life, many beyond our control, that bring stress, grief, and pain. Number three, limited and brief happiness lies in the gratification of desire. But fuller, deeper, and lasting happiness lies in the gratification of virtuous desire. Virtuous, again, meaning that which is consistent with the law of God and the law of your conscience. 
next topic I want to cover. So let's let's I've been talking about temporal and lasting happiness. So what we want is lasting happiness more so than temporal happiness, obviously. And these are some of the differences I've been talking about. So now we're going to go on to this question. How can I attain personal happiness? Well, number one, it is attained by making it less than our chief goal. Most people are unhappy because they're pursuing happiness as their chief goal. That's not the way to get real happiness. If you look at people, a lot of people are trying to pursue happiness. But why do so few find it? Well, it's because they are seeking it in their own way or in the world's way and not in the Bible way. So happiness found in the Bible way means we've got to seek God and his kingdom first. And that will bring happiness. So happiness is a byproduct of obedience to God and putting God first in our lives. God's way of obtaining true and lasting happiness is to not aim supremely at our own happiness, but to aim supremely at God's happiness. To make God happy means to please him. And the way to please him is to worship him, trust him, and obey him in all respects. That pleases him. That makes him happy. That's what we should be living for. True personal happiness is found in obeying God's laws, God's rules, as made known more or less in everyone's conscience and made known perfectly in the Holy Bible, the King James Bible. Quote, He that keepeth the law happy is he. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs 29, verse 18. So you want to be happy? Do right. Obey the rules of God, and you will generally be happy in this life. Not without mixture, of course. There will be consequences of your obedience to God, just as there are consequences of disobedience to God. It is good, proper, and right to make our own happiness our proximate aim. And by proximate, I mean our nearby aim. And it's also proper to make it a secondary aim, but not to make it our ultimate aim or our primary aim. Seeing that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, it is obvious that it is our duty to have due regard to our own happiness and well-being. However, however, our regard must be a due and proper regard. That is, it must be according to its real value. Our own happiness must be weighed in the scale with the happiness of other beings and with other interests. Our happiness has true value, but God's happiness has infinitely more value. My life and well-being has much value, but my family's life and well-being 
has much more value because there is more of them than there is of me. The happy condition of my life is important, but the happy condition of my church or my country or my community is much more important. If one human soul is very valuable, then two human souls are twice as valuable. Those who make their own happiness their chief goal are selfish. And selfishness is a major cause of depression and low spirits. Selfish people are far from God because they are unlike God in their moral character. God is supremely benevolent and never selfish. Everything God does is to promote the good of being in general. And he sets top priority with himself, then with the human beings, and then with even the animals or the lower beings. God even cares for sparrows. But isn't God being selfish by requiring us to glorify and honor him and to put him first in our lives? No. He is not being selfish because his life, glory, happiness, and pleasure are of infinite worth. He does not value his own happiness and glory most because it is his own, but because in the scale of things, his life, his pleasure, and his interests are of infinite and utmost worth. The sum total of God's happiness as the infinite and supreme being is infinitely greater than the sum total of the happiness of all other beings in the universe combined. That's how valuable God is and his interests are. The creator of a thing or of a universe is always worth much more than the thing or things created. To illustrate, here is a man that is kind to animals. Suppose his dog falls into very cold and dangerous water. Would it be good and right to jump into that dangerous water at great risk to his own life just to rescue his dog? Would it not be more proper and benevolent to keep his own life alive by allowing the dog to die? The life and well-being of a man, woman, or child is much more valuable than the life and well-being of a dog. Now compare the relative value of God's life with ours, and we will easily see that the difference between God and all created beings combined is infinitely greater than between a man and his dog. So this begs another question. Isn't God happy in himself and in need of us to make him happy? Is he really in need of us to make him happy? The answer is yes. Well, God is happy in himself and uh, there is no need. Let me ask this question again. 
But isn't God happy in himself and in no need of us to make him happy? I answer yes. God is is happy in himself, but this does not give us the right to ignore the value of his pleasure and of his happiness. He can be displeased. His concern for our good um, causes us... uh, He gets um, displeased when our good is hurt, in other words. Um, Here's a sentence that I wrote. He can be displeased. His concern for our good incurs his displeasure when we disobey him because disobedience always results in some form of sorrow, pain, or unhappiness to his creatures. God longs to make us happy, and that is why he is angered and displeased when we violate the means to procure our own happiness and good. So yes, God is happy happy in himself, but that doesn't mean we have the right to displease him or to make him unhappy. There are people walking down the street who are very happy, and they're happy in themselves, but that doesn't give me the right to injure that person. Well, God is injured when people are hurt, And God is injured when his interests are opposed. So God's happiness is very valuable. So what is the God-appointed way to be happy? Here it is. Obedience to God and to those he has placed over us, in authority over us. Serving the best interests of God, the best interests of those we are related to, the best interests of those who cross our path in life, and the best interests of ourselves. This is the appointed way to obtain the most amount of happiness and joy in this life and hereafter. It's only by loving God supremely and by loving our neighbor as ourselves or our fellow man. The word neighbor means anybody that comes that you um, are associated with or come in contact with. Um, And so if we love God supremely and love our neighbors ourselves, that's how we achieve real and lasting happiness. And the reason why is because that's why God put us on earth. There's no other purpose uh, for our being on this earth than that of aiming or purposing to please God and benefit mankind. That's why we're here. This is man's chief purpose in life and why we exist. And no one can be truly and everlastingly content who does not know and aim to fulfill his or her purpose in life. So let's summarize. In summary, our happiness can only be achieved if we do not make it our supreme goal. Number two, personal happiness is achieved by loving God supremely and by loving others as ourselves. Now, I just mentioned that, but I'm going to go into this a little deeper. 
Man's chief purpose in life is to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, strength, might, and understanding. Now, we, we don't all have the same might, the same uh, ability to think, the same strength, the same understanding. But if we use what we've got to promote the interests of God, God will be happy with that. Whatever mind you've got left, if you're getting older and your mind doesn't work as well, use that for God. If your mind is young and it doesn't work that well, use that for God. If you're a child, use the mind, use the understanding you've, you've accumulated and use all what you've got to promote the interests of God and the interests of your fellow man. This is the key to happiness and well-being. The key to depression is being selfish or promoting your own happiness as an end. If that's your end, if that's your ultimate goal, to promote your own happiness, you will be depressed. Depressed. If we refuse to fulfill our grand purpose in life, we will suffer the consequences sooner or later. There are no exceptions to this rule. Here's a good verse in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Quote, Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. End quote. Obeying God's commandments is the means of fulfilling our grand purpose. Many are depressed and unhappy because they are aiming to feel right instead of aiming to do right. Well-being stems from well-doing. And in that verse, it says, oh, that there would be such an heart in them. Another, that word heart usually speaks of the will or the intent. If there would be such an intention in them that they would fear me, that word fear means to respect highly. It means to be afraid of displeasing him because of the consequences. But it also means a reverential fear or a very high respect that is higher than any other person. That's what it means to fear God. And then it says to keep all my commandments. Well, most people are selective in the commandments that they keep. But here it says we've got to keep them all. And then it says always. Some people keep all God's commandments for five minutes out of the day. Well, that's not enough. Or for five hours out of the day, the day. That's not enough. It says, keep all my commandments always. That means consistently, always. It means exactly that. And of course, uh, life happens and temptations come and sometimes we fail to keep those commandments. Well, if that happens, don't stay down and depressed. Just confess it, admit it, get right with those you've offended and confess it to, and change your ways and uh, begin and, and, and get back on the right path. And then God will eventually give you some joy and happiness. Those who serve God and mankind to the best of their understanding and ability will have a real purpose in life. They will have a clear conscience. They will have much joy. They will have inner peace. And that will be in spite of some cost, some pain, some rejection, 
they may need to bear or some kind of trial that may come their way. Serving and following Christ involves denying one's self and carrying one's cross. And the cross speaks of that difficulty that lies in the pathway of duty. Duty to God and duty to your fellow man. That's the cross. It's not easy, but that's what we've got to bear. We've got to carry our cross. So serving Christ and following Christ involves denying oneself. Self-denial in itself is not good. It should be for the purpose of glorifying God, for the purpose of promoting the interests of Christ. Loving God supremely involves reading the Bible. It involves studying it to interpret it correctly by using all the available means. Use dictionaries, commentaries, talk to people about it, ask people what they think this verse means. Use all available means. And also, um, loving God involves promptly not only understanding the Bible, but promptly practicing it or obeying it in every respect. If the Bible is unavailable, then it is our responsibility to find out what love to God and mankind involves by making good use of our God-given ability to think, reason, and judge. And we all have that ability. There's two kinds of religion, you could say. Uh, there's natural religion, and that's religion that people perceive based on reasoning. And then there's revealed re religion, which is that religion which is based on whatever is revealed, which would be the Bible. So if we don't have revealed re religion or uh, uh, God's revelation, we can always learn a lot about God just through nature or through thinking things through. All people are morally obligated to seek God and do the most good they can for as long as they can. Here's a good verse. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. That is in Isaiah 55 verse 6. Here's another good verse. Quote, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. That's in Psalm 144, verse 15. So we're asking the questions here. How to attain personal happiness? We mentioned that, number one, personal happiness is attained by making it less than our chief goal. Number two, personal happiness is achieved, achieved by loving God supremely and by loving others as ourselves. And number three, happiness is achieved or attained by pursuing eternal interests more highly than temporal interests. We all tend to be short-sighted in our goals and actions. Like Esau of old in Genesis, we want our pleasures now. We want our physical and temporal appetites fulfilled rather than our spiritual and moral appetites fulfilled. The full benefits of serving God are not found in this world. They are in heaven. Hence, we must trust that God 
is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that verse, part of that verse, is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. So it requires faith in the God who promised that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's why we need faith in God. The benefits of serving God are out of this world. They're not in this world. They're out of it. We must learn to live so as to hear from God on Judgment Day, quote, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what we should live for. Is this what you long for and choose as your highest goal? Are you living so as to hear from God, well done, thou good and faithful servant? That should be what every one of us should be living for, just to hear that. That would make all the trials of life worth it. If at the end of our life, he says, come, enjoy the glory of heaven with me. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Choosing as our ultimate end, the praise of men or the rewards of this life will not bring real inner and lasting happiness. Number four, happiness and blessing result when we choose to be like God in our inner character. To be like God means to be godly. It means to regard his pleasure, his interests, and his honor in the same light as he does. If we desire our own pleasure and honor more than God's pleasure and honor, then we are not like God. We're not godly. Nothing causes one to be inwardly depressed more than being ungodly. You want to be depressed? Become ungodly. Become selfish. That will lead to a lowness of spirit, a downcast. That will lead to unhappiness and sadness. God is the most happy and satisfied being in the universe. Therefore, we will be most happy and least depressed when we are like him in our choices and in our character. That is, when we obey his commandments, his laws. The sum of God's moral character is this, quote unquote, disinterested benevolence. That's a term that old pastors used to use in America in the 1800s, 1700s, dis, disinterested benevolence. This is an old term that means doing good not for the sake of promoting our own interests as an end, but for the sake of promoting the highest possible interests of God and mankind. Disinterested benevolence is unselfishness. That's what that means. It is doing good in order to please God and benefit mankind as the ultimate intention, and not in order to please or benefit one's own self as the ultimate intent intention. Many do good to others for the sake of promoting themselves or to be seen of men. In Matthew 23, 5, Jesus says this, but all their works, speaking of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of, of his day, he says, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. Well, he says they've got their reward. Yeah, they got the praise of men. Well, if we do good to be seen of men, that's, that's a uh, that's selfishness, and it's a sense, it's pride, too. 
It's a selfish kind of love to, to live in that way. So giving donations, offering up prayers, attending church, fasting, confession of sins. These are all good things. Meeting the needs of others, keeping unspotted from the world, teaching Sunday school class. All these things in and of themselves are good. But doing all these things to be seen of men or to receive a pat on the back are examples of selfishness. They're examples of self-interested benevolence. In other words, it's not real benevolence. They're doing good for the sake of promoting themselves, self-promotion or, or uh, out of a sense of being wanting to be noticed. Well, these are selfish acts, even though the deeds themselves do much good. I mean, it's great when people give donations to good causes and, and attend church. All these things are confessing sins. That's good. But it's got to go deeper. Doing these things out of a sincere aim to bless God and all people is the essence of pure religion. And it's the key to being blessed. It's the key to being happy. That's number four. Now, number five. Obedience to God will secure happiness more than having the assurance of salvation. Now, if you're sure that you're on the way to heaven, that will bring a lot of happiness. But there's something that will bring more happiness than having the assurance of salvation. And you know what it is? It's simply obedience to God. Faith in God and obedience to Him. Some think that having the assurance of salvation is the key to happiness. This surely helps to make one happy, but it is not the key. Feeling secure in our salvation will not conduce to our well-being as much as being free from all known sin. It is holiness, which means freedom from sin. It's godliness, which means choosing what God wants us to choose. It's disinterested benevolence, which means unselfishness. It's obedience to God's laws and promoting the welfare of all people that brings clear, it brings a clear conscience, it brings peace of mind, it brings gladness and joy and well-being to one's own self and to others. <clears throat> so that's an important point. Number five, obedience to God will bring more happiness than merely having the assurance that you'll go to heaven someday. Number six, doing the following things will help deliver from lowness of spirits, depression, and it will help to bring true joy. It will deliver from depression and it will help to bring happiness. And I just mentioned a lot of them. So I, I, I got a lot of these written down here. I'm going to just read them off, make a few comments here and there. Okay, first thing. How to, okay, these things will deliver from depression. Make seeking God and His righteousness your top priority. Top. Number two, do nothing that may hinder your fellowship with Christ. Sin is the one thing that separates us from God. Fullness of joy is the fruit of being in fellowship with God and in a state of obedience to Him. Next, don't wait until the Spirit leads you. 
to do your duty. Instead, do it as soon as it is known and practicable. If work needs to be done at home, do it. Don't wait, don't prolong it. Do the next thing that you know you need to do. You'll find that satisfaction and happiness will follow when you yield or we yield to the promptings of conscience. Next, choose to do right and serve others in spite of how you feel. Don't live and direct your decisions by how you feel. Let God's law direct your decisions and direct and, and uh, show you what you should do. God's law. In other words, we should live a commandment-dominated life rather than a feeling-dominated life. So the Bible says to exercise yourself unto godliness. That word exercise means exert. Exert yourselves unto godliness. Doing right is the key to being right with God and with others. Some like to put it the other way around. They think being right is the key to doing right. No, 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 no. Doing right is the key to being right. You want to be right with God? Then do the right thing. Repent of sin. Believe in him. Follow him. So right doing leads to uh, well-being <clears throat> or right being. Next, read the Bible and pray to God every day or as often as possible and practical. Next, do not adjust to your culture or to the culture of your friends or to the culture of your professing church. Instead, conform exactly and always to the teachings of Scripture. Adjust your life according to Scripture rather than according to the lives of good Christians <clears throat> that you may know. Now, it's always good to benefit from the lives of good Christians, and obviously we all can benefit from good examples, but the best example is Christ. Uh, that's what we call ourselves. We call ourselves Christians. That means we, we pattern our lives after Christ, not after sinners and not after lukewarm Christians. Uh, <clears throat> next, uh, live by the laws of God's word instead of by a leading of the spirit that lacks biblical support. A lot of people say, well, I feel led of the spirit to do this. Well, a lot of times all that is, is just your feelings. It's your gut feeling. You feel, oh, this is probably what I should do. That's not how we should govern our lives. We've got to really think about our decisions. Are they in line with God's word, God's principles, God's laws? Next, talk to others about Christianity in order to learn more about it. Or if you know something about it, to propagate it to others. So try it. Talk about Christianity. It's the most important it's the only true religion, and it's the important, most important way by which we can all be happy. It's all by following the true Christ, the Christ of the Bible. Next, take care of your body and your mind regularly by exercise, by avoiding too much sleep or not enough sleep, by limiting caffeine intake, by eating well, um, so duty to God involves maintaining our health. Going to take a walk can really help 
to lift up your spirits. All kinds of things. There's all kinds of things we can do. Next, be constantly thankful to God for all the good people and good things in your life. And if some of the people in your life are not perfect, well, join the club. You know, sometimes we all have our moments when we're not perfect. But thank God for the people that are around you and the people that do good to you. And be thankful to them. And also be thankful for all the good things that God does for us every day. If you can't find anything to be thankful for, then here's something you can do. You can confess your sin right now because you're choosing to not see the obvious. Because everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, we all have so much to be thankful for. And that in itself will be very therapeutic. It will lift up your spirits. Just to be thankful. Make the most. This is the next one. Make the most of adversity. Trials can be our friends if we try to make the most of them. Adversity is not always a bad thing. Good can come out of it is what I'm saying. And sometimes adversity is the best thing. That it's one of the uh, most uh, prominent things that he uses to get our, our attention. Next, no matter how badly others may treat you, try hard to maintain a meek, sweet, and forgiving spirit without sacrificing truth and justice. A forgiving spirit is one that is ready to forgive. This does not mean we indiscriminately forgive all sins or all sinners. No, forgiveness should only be extended when the conditions are suitable. Like when there is admission of guilt, when there's repentance, when there's a willingness to make reparation for wrongs that have been committed. That's when we extend forgiveness. But as Christians, we should always have a heart of forgiveness. We should always be willing and ready to forgive because that's how God is. God doesn't forgive everyone, but he's always ready to forgive upon their repentance. Next, criticize yourself more strictly than others. In morals, be firmer on yourself than on others, and you'll find this will help you to be more happy. You like to be critical of certain actions? Do the most critical work on yourself. Abandon all personal opinions that conflict with truth or with scripture. We have no right before God to hold to a false opinion or to a good opinion in a contentious or selfish way. Aim to be of one mind with Christ and with true Christians and with the Bible. Next, keep short accounts with God. Don't wait till bedtime to get all your sins confessed and forsaken. No, do it right away. Keep short accounts with God. The moment you see sin in your life, admit it and discard it. Next, never allow yourself to become sullen, dispirited, gloomy, self-centered, or filled with self-pity. 
These are ways that you you will become depressed if you become sullen. Sullen means resentfully silent. You're gloomy. You're holding on to something and you're not being thankful in your present situation. Well, this will lead to depression. So never allow yourself to become dispirited. Don't allow yourself to get discouraged. Get back up. Do, do something good for somebody or for God or, or for yourself even. Okay? So self-absorption will lead to depression because you're a self-centered person. And um, self-centered, that's not why God put us here. God didn't put us here, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, promote our own well-being as an end and our own supposed good as an end. That's not why we're here. We're here to serve God and humanity, including ourselves, of course, because we're part of humanity. Next, avoid bad company, even if they profess to be Christians or Bible-believing Christians. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is really one. So avoid bad company, no matter what kind of bad company it is. Uh, even if you disagree with them, obey and respect all your proper authorities in your home, your church, your place of business, but never obey them to the point of disobeying God. So if you disagree with your boss, your husband, your father, your mother, your pastor, and they ask you to do something, do it. Do it out of respect for God because these are God's uh, authority figures that God has put over you. These are God's agents, you could say. <clears throat> God's deputies. So obey those in authority over you and that is actually obeying God. But do not obey them when they ask you to lie for them or to cheat or to do something wrong. Don't obey them to the point of sinning against God. <clears throat> Next, live by faith in God's word and in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is just simply, it means good doctrine based on the Bible. So live by faith in God's word and sound doctrine. And don't live by your feelings. Don't live by popular opinion. It's very easy to follow the crowd. <clears throat> Most of the crowd is unhappy, so why follow them anyway? Pay any price necessary to give up all bad habits, such as prescription drugs, smoking, drinking, gambling, overeating, viewing of obscenity, any bad habit, pay the price to give it up and you will find God will bless you for it. Next, avoid all preventable sources and places of temptation, such as the computer, the television, the bar down the street, the, the, the compromising church on the corner of the street. Avoid places of temptation. Yes, a church can be a source of temptation because many churches are teaching, teaching doctrines that are false. Teaching a false gospel 
or should I say a distorted, a perverted gospel, and uh, not teaching the moral law. Not um, A lot of churches are not um, practicing church discipline, and therefore many churches have become asylums of sinners instead of a, an assembly of saints. A saint is simply one who is set apart unto God, He's consecrated to God, and he aims to live a life that is free from sin. That's what a saint is. Is simply a saint is a Christian. He's a believer in Christ. He's one who is aiming to follow the teachings and the laws of Christ. That is a saint. You don't have to wait till you die. In fact, if you're not a saint on earth, you definitely will not be one in the next life. So in order to get to heaven, we must become saints. The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So, um, next, believe that moral perfection is attainable in this life and strive for it. Here's the Bible verse, and there are so many places in the Bible that talk about moral perfection. If you have a concordance, look up the word perfect in your King James Bible. Now, corrupt Bibles will, don't have the word perfect too often. They like to get rid of that word because, because the devil does not want you to aim at being perfect. He wants you to aim at being just like your neighbor down the street or just like the hypocrite who goes to church on Sunday. You know, That's what the devil wants you to do. But God says be perfect. And now what he means here is moral perfection. And here's a verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. It says, be perfect, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. There are so many verses in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 5, last verse, it says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That is a high standard. But that's the standard God has for us. And when he says perfect, he means, really, he means perfect in love. All he means by perfection is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you fail, just say, Lord, I am so sorry. Help me never to do that again. And get back up and go, go back on the right track. But that is God's standard. It is his law is his standard. And why did God give his law? Because he wants us to be happy. That's why he gave us his law. He gave it so that it would be kept, so that we could have well-being on this earth in a measure and perfect well-being in the next life in heaven. That's why he gave us his law. It's for our good. Next, do not minimize the importance of the human will in the formation of your character. Choosing to believe all the words of Christ forms good character. That's how we, we gotta choose, it's an act of the will, to believe all the words of Christ. And if you believe his words, and those words contain commandments, then what are you gonna do? You're gonna obey those commandments. So believe his words, and that will cause you to have good character. Jesus, in his word, claims to be the Savior. So believe that he can save you from all sins if you cooperate with him. Believe him. He claims to be the light of the world. So believe him. Follow him as if he is that light. 
don't follow the Illuminati because that's where the word Illuminati, enlightened ones, they think they're enlightened. No, they're enlightened with the light of Satan. The real light is Jesus Christ. The Illuminati is all Antichrist. They make up their own light and they think they're in the light, but they're not. The real light of the world is Jesus Christ. He claims to be the light of the world. So follow him as if he is really that light. He claims also to be Lord. So obey him as if he truly is that ultimate authority, as if he is Lord. He claims to be our helper. So go to him for help when you need it. And by the way, we will never be able to obey God's laws and love God supremely unless, we're, unless we have his help. It requires grace, God's grace, in order to really live for him. And I want to leave you with this good verse here. It's in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 23. It says this, but this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. Isn't that a blessing? God wants you to have well-being, but we've got to do our part. And what does he say? Obey my voice. Now, we can't obey God's voice unless we have his voice written down. And it's written down in the Bible. And then he says, he says, obey my voice and I will be your God. You want God to be your God? Well, you need to obey him. And ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you. Not some of the ways. Don't be selective in your obedience. Walk in all the ways. And this will bring... And he, he gives all these commands. He says, so that it may be well with you. There's the concept of well-being. And that's what happiness means. It means well-being, both in mind and body. So hope of good things to come brings tremendous joy. It says in Hebrews 10, verse 34, that they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods because they knew that in heaven they had a more enduring substance. These were Christians that were going through a lot of suffering for the cause of Christ. And probably most of them were Jews and they were following Christ and they received suffering and they, and they lost their goods. Have you ever lost your goods through divorce or something like that? Well, they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. Why? Because they had a hope and they had faith that in heaven there is a more enduring substance awaiting for them. So you see how th that hope, that faith that they had in God sustained these persecuted Christians. And it will sustain you in whatever the devil wants to throw your way. To be happy and joyful, we must focus our intentions and our choices and not so much our feelings 
on the things that are right and good. So don't focus on your feelings. Focus on, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to think? What do you want me to believe? And then act accordingly. I want to thank you for listening to another broadcast, the Neurological Deep Dive Podcast. And uh, this is for K&M Studios. And God bless you. See you next time. Bye. has been another neurological deep dive podcast i'm your host farad fonz and i'm thanking you for listening and stay tuned for another show and we out bye bye